welcome to the Outer Circle Inner Stillness. Reflections and conversations exploring recovery work in spiritual disciplines and where they come together. The Outer Circle comes from a recovery exercise called the Three Circles. The Middle Circle contains the bottom line behaviors, those destructive patterns you are working to avoid. The Second Circle contains those behaviors, patterns, places, and relationships that, while not inherently bad, for you are an integral part of the spiral towards the Middle Circle. The outer circle contains the vision of your best and fullest self that you are seeking to live. Turning towards this full self is turning away from your middle circle. The outer circle explores daily practices that promote sobriety, presence, balance, connection, thriving, purpose, healing, and resilience. Inner stillness is a concept from Orthodox Christian spiritual thought that refers to the deepest part of a person's soul, the place where God lives and speaks. In pursuing the outer circle and the inner stillness, I believe we can find all that we need. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Outer Circle and the Inner Stillness. I'm Reese Basimio, and I'm excited to have you along for a conversation today. Uh, today's episode is a little bit different, and I'll tell you why. Uh, so in former days, I was part of a podcast, it was a counseling podcast called Smart Counsel. Our tagline was uh, perspectives and resources on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. And this was through Multnomah University. And we had a lot of fun, a lot of great conversations about a lot of counseling topics, everything from parenting to addictions. We talked a lot about addictions, some about gender, a lot about sex and attachments and theology and many, many, many fun things. And then that gave birth to this podcast, which is a much more specific focus, which is lovely. Anyway, one of my favorite recurring hosts uh, was Ben Poling. He's a local counselor, a certified sex addiction therapist here in the Portland, Oregon area. And uh, we did this conversation uh, originally for the Smart Council podcast. And it had a little bit more of a, it was aimed at a little bit more of a general audience. But I wanted to bring this conversation to Outer Circle because of the particular content. Uh, This is an episode where uh, Ben is talking about a series of questions, the four questions that he often asks to his clients, and they represent a tool for self-reflection and self-examination and understanding the workings of one's own mind. And it's a little bit more on the intellectual side than overall, uh, say, visceral, emotional, uh, or spiritual. But I think there's a lot of value to that. So much of recovery happens in our minds anyway. And um, as we are fond of quoting our Orthodox fathers, saints, and elders, uh, you know, Elder Thaddeus is known to have said, our thoughts determine our lives. That's a very good book that everybody should read anyway. So all that to say, here is a conversation imported from a podcast from my previous life, and it is geared toward, it's a tool for looking at your thoughts and yet another way of examining how you're thinking. And I hope you enjoy it very much. Thank you. Welcome to Smart Council, the four questions. Smart Council provides perspectives and resources on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I'm Reese Pissimio. I'm Ben Poling. And hello, Ben. Welcome back. It's been a while. Thank you. It's good to have you back. It's good to be here. Yeah. Thank you. It's good to yeah. be back. 
Indeed. I'm excited to talk over some counseling, mental health, these sorts of things. Professionally, et cetera, what have you been up to the last little while? Oh, I just went to the uh, symposium for uh, ITAP for yeah addiction stuff. So lots of really good and interesting presentations there, like the one the most uh, was put on by Johan Hari, a really enjoyable presenter talking about addiction. That's cool. He was there. Yeah. Yeah. What else? What did he say? I mean, I'm sure he said a lot. But. <laughs> he, he did say a lot, um, but just really enjoyed kind of the perspective um, on addiction. And the so he talks a, yeah, a lot about the the Rat Park experiments. Which yeah, I don't I don't know how much detail we we should go into, but that's uh, yeah. yeah, very very interesting experiments and uh, has a lot a lot of insight for addiction work as as well as just general mental health work. So I think so. Yeah, I I'll, I want to recap that just a little bit because I mean I, I know what it is and I think it was pretty great, but just just in case if I if I remember right, essentially what Rat Park did was meet all of a rat's basic needs, uh, you know, on, on, on Maslow's hierarchy, there's, you know, there's the, your basic needs for, you know, food and water and shelter and safety, and then a little bit more sophisticated needs for, you know, community and attachment and, and, you know, things like that. Uh, and, and once all of those are in place, then a person can pursue things like self-actualization or spiritual growth or something like that. And what Rat Park did was meet all of those needs. It's this really, really fancy, huge living space with tons of food, tons of water, tons of mating, mating potential, and like also like a supply of cocaine. But within all of that, like it wasn't really it wasn't really used because there wasn't really a, a need, a felt need for it. So, what what do you find are some implications for? as uh, treatment addiction treatment professionals that we can draw from something like that. Yeah, there's a, there's been a couple of things that I've been talking with my clients about. So, you know, a, a part of the research too is that you know the, the researcher that you know that developed the rat park was stemming off of some some other research where essentially they they just took rats, they put them in a cage, they gave them a bottle of water and a bottle of water with heroin morphine actually and uh and to probably nobody's surprise the rats pretty much always chose the water with heroin and pretty quickly overdosed on that so were these rats angry maybe full of rage (laughs) i don't know i don't know but i I know that they were put in a cage (laughs) and so despite all the rage yes (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, <laughs> it's late. It's hot. I got it. It's uh, it's, uh, it's a good reference. <laughs> now, now we just need to start singing. <laughs> yeah. So you know the the idea that that I've taken with you know so I, well. What was cool was that the researcher that developed Rat Park kind of thought outside of the box and thought like rather than just seeing the drug as the problem, he thought like what if the environment is the problem. What if the fact that we're just putting them in a cage and they don't have anything else to do except for drink this, you know, 
heroin, heroin water? What if we provided everything they do need and then also see if they continue to choose that? Um, so it's really interesting stuff. And the implications, I think, for uh, my clients in particular with addiction is, um, it, you know, I, I'll, I'll often talk about, okay, so what is your cage and what would your rat park look like? What, what would you need in order to, to feel fulfilled or, or content with life so that you don't need, you know, this you know, heroin water or food or porn or drugs um, alcohol, whatever, in order to cope and deal with it. So uh, those, have, those have been some interesting conversations. One area where I think I'd, I'd like to look into with that research is, uh, um, or, you know, or, or I think there may be more research necessary is to take the rat, take rats that developed a addiction to, you know, to the heroin water and put them in rat park and see what kind of effect that has if they adjust and, and, you know, are, are able to, you know, be in recovery essentially from, uh, in, in rat park, or if they just continue to misuse the, the heroin water. So that, I think that would be an interesting thing because it, you know, it feels really cut and dry the way it is. Well, you just need to, you know, just need, need to meet all your needs and, and you'll be fine. When in reality, like with addiction, there is the, you know, the, the brain and the, and the biological components that, that make it more complicated. I suppose that's all, there's a risk that, you know, ev- everyone who tries to touch the monster of addiction has to reckon with this risk of giving a, a just solution. Uh, well, just do this or just do that. Or here's mm-hmm. a single, a single, all pur- one purpose a multi-purpose answer, one size fits all, uh, because exactly like you're saying, there's environment, but there's also genetics. There's also society. There's also trauma. There's also, you know, a, a host of things. And I, I, I would, I would lean on environment is, is pretty close to the top of very, very influential factors. Well, well, close. I mean, I, I also lean the direction of like trauma and like attachment as like really huge also, but Addressing that would be one thing, but yeah, it would be curious, curious to see what some of the variants might be of that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it's definitely you know, I think with any counseling, mental health work, it's it's you know, it's a lot more nuanced because every client's going to be different, and you know, and, and addiction work is is no different. That you know, it's it's yeah, there's there's you can't just say just do this and and you'll be better. You know, there's, there's a lot of factors and it's, it's very nuanced work of, of investigating and, and figuring out what are the factors that affect this client the most. Yes. Lots of investigation, lots of work. It's, it's an interesting project, even just trying to fully assess it. And uh, I mean, insert rant about like challenges and limitations to like your your assessment process and all the things you're technically supposed to get done in 90 minutes which it can't be done uh but yeah there's a lot to look at there's i mean you look yeah, i mean there's the initial like here here's a presenting problem here's the the initial symptoms the patterns but then you gotta get a feel for like well what's the rest of the life context and like the life story and the family history and because all of that matters 
and it's uh, and it takes a lot, yeah it takes a lot of work to fully get, get to know someone and and get to know the things that you need to know because you don't always need to know the same stuff for every person and so it just it's a lot of work and a lot of effort very good effort but where you know it's it's challenging for because a lot of us providers are not always in contexts that are very supportive of taking all of the time which is unfortunate right yeah well yeah well thanks for sharing that's really cool i'm glad you got to go to the the the, the itap symposium i'm i'm excited to do that maybe next year or sometime um because seeing colleagues is always lots of fun and yes, it'll be nice next year it'll be in person so ah uh, hooray <laughs> was, maybe we, yeah it was <laughs> Yeah, it was not as fun just sitting at my computer doing Zoom meetings for all of it, but it was still good content. So, yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad. I will be excited to show up uh, maybe next year then. Uh, so we are talking about the the four questions which I want to ask you about very much. So, but uh, one of the reasons I'm excited about this one is, uh, you know, in in counseling, we have our, a lot of our own jargon and a lot of words and phrases we throw around a whole bunch. And one of them is this idea of, you know, doing the work or we'll sometimes we'll talk about inner work or, you know, so-and-so does his or her work. And there's this real, I, I, I perceive at this point, there's this kind of assumption we know what that looks like or we're talking about, but it is in a way one of those other really vague phrases where what is that work actually like what like how do i know when i'm doing the inner work and how do i know when i've done it enough and you know do i just have to think think about things a bunch or do i just have to stew over stuff for enough time and then i've done my work and and everything i'm excited for you to present this exercise because it feels like a specific example of what that work could be and um i'm i'm, I'm always a big fan of you know specific tools i mean i come just short of like giving handouts to people because I can sometimes feel a little bit gimmicky, but, uh, but, you know, having a specific, you know, try these three questions or try these four questions or breathe this way, not that way. Uh, you know, the, the really tangible things, they, they can be really useful. So I think you've got something like that. Um, but anyway, now that I've been talking about what you're going to talk about, would you like <laughs> to talk about it? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm excited to be able to, uh, kind of present this and, uh, something I've been, talking with clients about and and giving to clients as a, uh, a resource to use. And so, yeah, the, the idea with the four questions is that, it, you know, it, um, it, it's a kind of a, a mindfulness exercise, uh, you know, of doing some looking inward and, and also learning how to identify and meet your needs. And so it, it looks very simple on the surface. But I think underneath, there's a lot of actual like infrastructure that can be built up to make it, you know, re really effective for people. So um, the four questions are essentially: what What are you feeling? Why are you feeling that way? What do you need? And how can you fill that need? So, like I said, you know, really simple questions. It could be, you know. You can look at it and think it's, yeah, maybe really gimmicky or, or just very, very simple. But I think underneath each of those questions, there are some really important skills uh, for for mental health uh, and also for people in recovery in particular. 
So like looking at, you know, first off, what are you feeling? A lot of, a lot of people really struggle to be able to identify emotions. And so that's one of, one of the things that uh, I have to work with with a lot of clients is just being able to identify what is it that I'm feeling. Uh, and if you can't identify your emotions, it makes it very difficult to actually be able to, when you feel emotions, to be able to manage or, or uh, deal with those emotions in appropriate ways. And what we see with addiction is oftentimes emotions are, are felt but not recognized. And because, uh, you know, the client has really just learned one way to deal with, you know, difficult emotions, emotions that cause distress for them, they just do that. So that, you know, let's say it's alcohol, you know, whenever they feel an overwhelming emotion, they don't necessarily know what it is. They just know it feels distressing to them. And so they go, they go to the bottle. If you can learn to be able to identify emotions, you can learn also to be able to face those emotions directly rather than just using alcohol to, to deal with all of them. So yeah. The, the, yeah, the first question is, what are you feeling? Yeah. That requires the, that learning of identifying your emotions. Yeah, there would there would be a lot have to be a lot of learning. It's like almost like learning a whole another language to be able to, to answer that well. Like learning the language of emotions, the body sensations. Um, it seems like there have to be. But I don't know. Would you say that there has to be a, a little bit of in, intuitive sense to that, or just I I have a expanded vocabulary, or what helps with that? Do you think? Yeah, well, I think it's a I think it's a bit of both. It's something that I find really beneficial. For clients that really do struggle with being able to identify emotions is giving them or showing them a feelings wheel. So people that aren't familiar with that, essentially, it's a it's a circle with a bunch of emotions and kind of it's broken up in sort of a pie sort of a shape with different slices and in, in the center. And there's like uh, three different circles, kind of concentric circles inside of the big circle. And in the very center of it, you have kind of these very big primary emotions like sad and angry and joy, uh, you know, and, and things like that. So I think there's like five, five or seven like main emotions that are in the middle that, you know, most people can kind of be like, okay, I know I'm feeling in, in this area of like angry, but then in that pie slice, you can move out and get some other feelings that might uh, be more specific to how you're actually feeling frustrated, irritated, etc. And so I think that that's something that can be really helpful in, in developing both of the, so, you know, to be able to increase the vocabulary, but then also to be able to tie that vocabulary to, you know, the sensations of that emotion, you know, the body sensations and the, and the thoughts and things that are all part of the emotion. Yeah. The externalization tools, like, like a feelings wheel are, can be really powerful or you know, like there's the feelings wheel, the feeling faces, the color palette, mm-hmm. the color feelings palette. Yeah. And those are all super, super great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah any yeah. tools like that, I think are really helpful for people to start learning that, yeah. Yeah, that emotional vocabulary, that emotional intelligence mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah. 
Yeah, I kind of feel like, you know, kind of a, a you know, a sub issue kind of bridging the first and second question is uh, not just like, what are you feeling? But it, in some cases, I find people need to not only be given language for what they're feeling, but also like permission to have the feelings. Uh, mm. And there's, <laughs> there's a, a variety of factors that impact that, you know, a lot of individual family cultures or larger traditions sometimes discourage, well, definitely discourage certain feelings or extreme feelings. Um, yeah, it seems like some, some family cultures too, I would kind of discourage like self-reflection in general. Sure. So sometimes part of what we need to do is just part of what we do is we offer that permission to self-reflect. So, so I guess if we're, you know, kind of going on this question of like, what does inner work look like? I guess we could say, well, like any sort of like internal reflection or asking yourself questions or looking in at yourself counts as inner work. And it could be like, a I don't know, where my family is attempting to make that like kind of a, a second nature thing that we just always do. But uh, I know that like not every family, I mean, I didn't grow up in a family like that. So uh, it's, it's kind of a, a newer thing for us. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think there's a lot of, a lot of factors that, yeah, make, make feeling emotions difficult, like not, you know, feeling like you you don't have the permission or something. And I think that, yeah, that is part of, uh, maybe even the infrastructure that goes into being able to, you know, um, to do this exercise is, is accepting that you have emotions and that emotions are, are, are okay. That, yeah, that it's okay to, to experience those emotions. Yeah. Speaking of it being okay to experience emotions. So your second question is why are you feeling this way or for what yeah. reason does this feeling come? Right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, which I think is, you know, is an important question as well, because it helps you to be able to do a couple of things. One is to be able to, to link your emotions to events and thoughts. So some, you know, our, our emotions are typically linked to, to our thoughts, you know, and so, you know, CBT theory says essentially that our, that our thoughts come first before our emotions. Um, and I think in general, that's, that seems to be true. Um, although oftentimes our emotions seem to be the, the first reaction, you know, oftentimes there are, there are thoughts that are either, you know, simultaneous or right, right before that, that are linked to those emotions. And so being able to, you know, to link those and, and see those, because oftentimes those thoughts are, uh, kind of subconscious or just, uh, they're so innate to us that we don't even really recognize that they're happening. So I think being able to make those connections with thoughts, you know, as far as why we're feeling that way, as well as like the events, sometimes we go, you know, we go through our day and we find, you know, that we're feeling like irritable uh, and frustrated and we're like taking it out on our family members or, or coworkers or something in it. But like you think to yourself, like, well, why am I feeling this way? I don't know why. I don't know why I'm so irritable right now to be able to link that to events, you know, earlier in the day, you know, Oh yeah, I had this conversation with this person earlier and that, you know, that really just rubbed me the wrong way or like feeling states or, you know, body feeling states like hunger or tiredness to be able to, to say like, Oh, Actually, I'm just I'm just hangry right now. Like you know, I'm I'm taking things out on people because I I just need to eat food, or or I'm tired, um, and so to be able to 
identify all the different ways or reasons that you feel things, um, you know, th- and that being able to do that builds up to the next part, which is right. Like, how do I, wh- what do I need? I, I really like that. I mean, if this feels like a, a really important question, it sort of feels like in reference to, you know, some people will ask, well, why does it matter about like the past or why do you think about other stuff? And I guess part of the reason is like, because the past matters and the past affects us or, and, and, and past could mean like, you know, long ago childhood, or it could mean like, you know, a few hours ago, stuff that has happened before generates a feeling. Yeah. I like how there, there's a tie into, you know, it's not just emotions, but it's also physicality. And <laughs> I know my, my wife and I have this joke about like, you know, well, what have you eaten today? And the answer is, you know, two Snickers and a latte. And it's like, well, no wonder you feel terrible. <laughs> so, because uh, <laughs> those things, those things matter. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about, um, again, just how feelings are not just like disembodied, decontextualized states they they have function they have reason uh, mm-hmm. i think in in um in the little bit that i've dabbled in like the internal family systems framework and, and it's just a little bit of dabbling no official training but they seem to talk <laughs> about to be dangerous like uh, yes very dangerous <laughs> <laughs> you know but they you know they, they they talk about these different parts within us and a lot of them show up in our feelings or as our feelings and so you know sadness shows up and there there's this really neat way that they they will like dialogue with it be like okay sadness why are you here what are you trying to tell me what's your message or similarly to how you know you might register like physical pain in your body part of the reason that shows up is to say hey there's a problem something's not working something needs attention and you know if nothing else we could say you know feelings function as those sorts of messengers and so asking a feeling why it's there or following it back upstream to try to get a sense for what's the the need or what's the wound. I mean, to me, that seems like a really valuable discipline and a really valuable line of inquiry. Yeah. 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 I think it's um, been helpful for me and, you know, and, and it seems to be helpful in my work with clients as well. And just being able to identify the emotions and why they're there. Absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah. even if it's like, even if the answer isn't always super clear, there's some tr- there's some benefit just to the process because you become the kind of person who slows down and reflects and, and wonders about these things rather than just being blindly, helplessly carried about by the feeling. Mm. Right. Yes, absolutely. That yeah, that mindfulness, that intentionality of yeah, being present with yourself, which is something so many people struggle to you know to to do particularly in addiction. I don't know. I mean, there's so many clients that I have that are just constantly running from thing to thing. And, you know, and, and if they're not doing something, they're on their device, you know, being entertained because they can't stand to be with themselves and learning to be able to slow down and be with yourself and to be okay with yourself is, uh, you know, is a huge skill. A lot of work that like, goes into that for some people because you know there's a lot of a lot of things that go into why you, you don't want to be with yourself. Indeed, yes. So, question number three. Mm-hmm. Question number three: uh, What do I need? Um, so, I think similar to what am I feeling? Part of this is 
making you know accepting the fact that you have needs and that that's that's normal that's okay that you have needs um and also that maybe you're not able to meet all of your needs yourself so i you know i think that's that's part of you know the work that is underlying this question is getting to that point of being able to say yes i i do have needs i you know i'm able to show up better for other people and and do you know what i need to do better when i take care of my needs physical emotional spiritual relational etc like all you know we have we have all these different spheres of our life where we have needs and being able to recognize that we have those needs and that it's okay to take care of those is is um, is really big it does seem really big and again along the same lines as you know if i can recognizing one has permission to have feelings one also has permission to have mm-hmm. needs and has permission to receive help and support for those needs and yeah i i, I like the push in the way you're, what you're talking about there there's this theme of of not maybe, maybe not full dependency but definitely an interdependency or at least not a not a hyper in hyper independence you know I am, you know, I am a lone lone island because I don't need anybody, and I'm impervious. And <laughs> which I know I don't I don't know if like real people actually talk in quite that extreme term, but you, you kind of get that sense sometimes of people being like, mm-hmm. I don't need nobody, I don't want to trust anybody because you know the only person I can trust is me. And mm-hmm. you know that there is that sentiment that a lot of people live with, and it yeah it functions in some contexts. But it does seem more burdensome than not a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, yeah, there's so many people that, that do struggle with that either. Yeah. Either like desire to just be really independent and I don't need anybody or, you know, coming from this culture that says you're not supposed to need anybody else. You're supposed to be very independent. And so they feel, you know, uh, very isolated and also like shame because like, Oh, I feel like I do need other people and I'm not supposed to, but there's a lot, you know, lots of things to unpack there, but yeah, it's, it's so important to, to be able to recognize that, that you have needs that it's, a, you know, that it's okay. And you know, I was thinking also like, you know, in work with addiction that, you know, extreme independence or feeling like you, you, you shouldn't, or you can't rely on other people, you know, really breeds or, or bolsters the addiction. Because if, you know, if I have needs, but I can't ask other people that I, you know, I, I need, I need this thing, alcohol, drugs, porn, sex, food, whatever, to help me, to bolster me so that I don't have to rely on other people. Because those things are really effective at what they do at numbing and, you know, and and helping you cope, even though they create, you know, a dependence on something else that's not, you know, it's not a healthy dependence um, and and cause destruction in your life and your relationships and, and things. Yeah, absolutely. 
And so now I'm curious about the other end of that of like, well, how do you, what do you do when the Macy person is aware of their need? They even give themselves permission to meet it, but then for a variety of reasons, they, there's just not a way to meet it. Like, I, I think a, a, an example that's come up a lot this, the, you know, the, the, this past year is, you know, people say like, why well, I, I really need to like see people, but there's like a scarcity of people who are willing to be seen <laughs> and, uh, or like I need alone time, but I am in my house a lot. And like, I'm like, I'm working from home and my partner's working from home and our kids are doing school from home. And like, <laughs> there is no alone time to be had. Mm. I mean, that's like a very, you know, this cultural moment sort of example, but you know, or if it's like, I need to do some sort of exercise, but there's like no, or like I need like healthier food, but maybe I live like super inner city and there is no healthy food to be found where I, I, I sometimes wonder about, well, I mean, I, I mean, I'm absolutely, absolutely do agree that, you know, we need to be able to recognize our needs, give ourselves permission to, to meet them. But also like, I mean, I see there's times when, well, and sometimes the needs don't get met and we kind of still have to be okay or, uh, forge through things anyway and they could guess develop a different kind of resilience um, i don't know what's mm-hmm. your what's your take on that mm-hmm. uh, i mean i like that, that word resilience i think you know that there's as as humans we have the ability to overcome so much you know so being able to i think being able to recognize that you have a need or a desire or you know or or, or whatever Um, But you just cannot, there's no way to meet that need right now. There's a couple of ways to go with that. I think, you know, there's a couple, you know, the one way of, you know, just despair, you know, which, which leads down to all sorts of things, um, notably addiction um, or, you know, there's, I guess, perseverance and and resilience that, that come from that being able to recognize you have a need there's nothing I can do with that, but I'll be okay. And that, yeah. you know, I think that's something that can be built, but I think you need to have the awareness that, to be able to do that. Right. I think that would be the, one of the major differences between like a true resilience and just, uh, like, like the white knuckling willpower, like, uh, like resilience comes with a lot of self-awareness and like, I know what I'm getting into. I'm curious about it. I'm open to it. I'm making space for it. But all of that requires really being like up close with it. Whereas uh, maybe a lot of people try to just do, you know, be in denial or brushing it off, minimizing it, or just be like, I'm just not going to talk about it. So therefore it doesn't exist or (laughs) I want to believe it doesn't exist. And, And I'll try to call that resilience, but I'm actually really brittle and kind of angry. Uh, feels very different i think yeah but yeah but i mean i guess on a more on, on a more hopeful note or, or looking at well i mean I'm, i mean this this kind of leads us into i guess question number four then too of you know how do you how do you go about meeting the need which i guess mm-hmm. could encompass the situations sometimes there's not necessarily a meeting of the need in the way you want to but there's still uh that need is there how do you handle it and then i guess and there's other times when like there are accessible solutions and yeah, that yeah, that one seems very open ended and very individual. What do you how 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 do you work with that one? Yeah, well, I think it's just really good to um, to work with people and and help uh, people recognize that there's you know there's all kinds of ways to meet needs, and there are some needs that we can we can absolutely meet on our own, but there are other needs where we we need other people. You know, we are, we are social creatures. We need other people. 
to, you know, to, to be able to meet our needs for connection, you know, and to feel valued. And so, um, but even, even there, there are ways that, you know, spirituality can, can meet some of those needs in the absence of, which, I mean, I think is another, I guess, answer to, to the question that you asked before, you know, what if you can't meet those needs? I think that's another place where spirituality can really play an essential part for a lot of people in building that resilience. But yeah, so we have, we have all these different ways that we can meet our needs. And so being able to do that work of, you know, recognizing, you know, okay, so I have, I have this need for connection. How can I, how can I get that met? And some people think, well, I, you know, I just, I need to, I need to connect with my significant other that, you know, that that's a really good way to do that. But sometimes our significant other isn't, isn't receptive or isn't available for that. You know, think about, you know, in a lot of the work that we do, there's betrayal, you know, your, your significant other wants nothing to do with you um, because of, you know, having hurt them. How can you get your connection needs met when that, you know, when there's, when there's boundaries and, and barriers between you and your significant other, there's other people connect with people, other people in recovery, connect with friends, connect with family, um, other safe people that are in your life. So being able to identify all those areas where you can get that need met, you know, and, and to do that in all the different areas of your life. Yeah. It seems like doing this step well requires a lot of creativity and which maybe uh, again, thinking about, you know, the, the ideal state, the ideal state to, to be in, to be creative means, I mean, it requires like a lot, a lot of, you know, confidence and a lot of just, you know, courage to try different things and probably, you know, and again, I'm, I'm borrowing a little bit from the, this uh, internal family systems, you know, concept of like the, like the core self, the self energies, you know, that place where you're most, you know, calm and curious, compassionate, creative, you know, it, uh, you know, a lot of that comes from, you get to that state by slowing down, being calm and curious and being reflective. So it, in a sense, like your other questions are starting the process of slowing down and reflecting. And I guess working down to this point of saying, okay, now that I have reflected and come to peace with my own self, now I must figure out what to do. And in the calmness and the stillness, there's a way that I can just, I can kind of intuitively know what to do and have the wherewithal to do it. But it often takes that reflective process, that slowing down process to get there. Uh, so there we go. That's why we need to reflect. Mm-hmm. Yes, for sure. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, this um, has been something that I've presented to a lot of my clients and has been helpful to a number of them and you know, encourage anybody else that, you know, thinks that it could be helpful to, take it, use it. And yeah, I think it can be a really beneficial mindfulness practice for anybody who's working to, to, to better understand themselves and, and better um, regulate, you know, their, their emotions and their, um, their needs. Yeah. That sounds really useful. Any particular 
kinds of people or particular situations where you find this particularly useful or is this, does this feel like a more universally approachable sort of tool for you? Um, I mean, I, I think it is I mean, fairly universally appropriate. So uh, this may be a bit of a rabbit trail, but my, my view of a healthy person is essentially someone who's able to be, be honest with themselves um, so, you know, connect with yourself um, and and be honest with others and connect with others. And you know, kind of the, it's the you know, elevator speech version of what <laughs> of, of a healthy person. And and so I think, you know, this exercise can really help in doing that. That being said, I, I do think in working with addiction, it can be particularly useful um, because it touches on areas that I think people who struggle with addiction tend uh, tend to really struggle with. Yeah, I, I would conc- I would concur with the, within folks who have addictions have compulsions. There tends to be a dearth of pausing, of slowing, definitely being uh, quiet and present with oneself. So any any means by which a person can slow down and, and think and feel and, and be be in their body is, is going to be helpful helpful in the long run and and again what i think what she what she offer here is here's a really simple really practical tool like i mean four questions kind of easy to remember uh you know anybody could pull this out and you know you could do this you could you know bust through these questions in about a minute and a half or so if you want, or you can take like, I mean, we just took, you know, you know, 45 minutes, you know, talking through like how to think through them and all of that. So it could be super deep if we wanted to, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great grabbable tool. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and I'm, you know, I don't feel I can really take credit for it. It's very simple questions. It is, uh, yeah, it has been helpful for me and for clients and hope it can be helpful for others. You know, I think chocolate chip cookies are like flour, butter and sugar and chocolate. So again, not, not really complicated. And yet like we love, we love them. We love them. So, so anyway, <laughs> yes. Well, thank you, Ben, for sharing a tool, sharing some ideas and coming back to hash some things out. So it's been great to connect and great to construct a, a dialogue so yeah, thank you uh, for having me. Yeah. It's an honor to be here again. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, I'll put in the notes and things, but, uh, if a listener wants to you know, reach out to you, uh, where's a good place to find you? Yeah. So I work at a new day counseling center. So, uh, we're at a new day counseling.org or, uh, my website has been polling Um, so you can, um, connect with me in in either of those places yeah okay that sounds great well you heard it here folks here's here's the path to mindfulness <laughs> according to ben <laughs> and you should you should do it but thank you for listening along with us and let's keep the conversation going thank you for joining me in today's conversation my name is Reese Basimio. I'm an Eastern Orthodox Christian and a clinical counselor with specialties in substance use, compulsive behaviors, sexuality, and trauma. You can reach me through newpatterncounseling.com. This episode was mastered by Breakfast Puppies. The music is by Titus Lockard. Please like, rate, review, and share this podcast from all your favorite platforms. 
Please also consider showing your support of this work through contributing dollars through the podcast page at patreon.com slash outer circle. Thank you and see you next time.